for the approximately 2 million people living with atrial fibrillation, commonly known as AFib, comes the reality that they are more than 70% likely to die of a stroke. While we can often understand the physical responses to illness, we too often overlook the emotional responses. Today's guest is here to help us understand the emotional impact of AFib. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Dr. Christopher R. Ellis of Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Ellis is a cardiologist cardiovascular disease specialist, and he has over 18 years of diverse experience, particularly in the area of cardiology. Dr. Ellis, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with what AFib actually is. What is atrial fibrillation? That is a good question, actually. Uh, first, it's the certainly the most common arrhythmia that we manage uh, increasingly frequent as patients uh, age. It is an irregular heart rhythm that lacks uh, the coordinated beating from the top and bottom chambers in the heart and manifests mainly through irregularity in the pulse and then a variety of symptoms that patients may or may not attribute to, oh, that's AFib, uh, but it may actually be from uh, from the arrhythmia. It's just no coordinated electrical um, contraction in the top chamber, kind of a quivering in the atrium. I usually describe it to patients if you thought about when you were watching television and turned to a channel that doesn't have reception uh, all of a sudden you go from a nice clear picture to white noise. And that's kind of what has happened uh, when the heart goes into AFib. What are some of the symptoms that folks might typically ignore uh, that could be associated with AFib? Yeah, well, in in. In my practice, the majority of, of what I do is uh, is manage AFib, and I've seen all kinds of uh, of a spectrum of symptoms. Um, if the heart rate is really going fast in AFib, people can certainly feel a fluttering in the chest or uh, a, a pulse that is really uh, rapid if they were able to feel their pulse. Um, a lot of patients can't feel that, uh, so they notice something like um, just a, a profound lack of energy uh, or their normal activity that they're used to doing, maybe going out, um, walking to the mailbox and back, particularly if there's uh, inclines, they may feel like, oh, I'm a lot more short of breath or that was more difficult than than I remember. So it can be a subtle change in your um, exertional in your ability to exercise or, or exert yourself. Um, some patients will notice that they actually um, urinate a lot when they go into AFib. Uh, they may have uh, wild swings in their blood pressure if they're a patient with high blood pressure and, uh, and, they, and they track that at home carefully. 
Uh, and then some people may, may just notice um, fatigue. You know, they just feel tired, like they're not sure that anything specific was wrong, but they just haven't felt well. And I'll see that a lot where a patient gets picked up, um, say, getting a, a colonoscopy or some other some other interface with the medical community. They're found to be in AFib and they didn't know it. And then uh, once normal rhythm is restored, uh, they all of a sudden appreciate all the symptoms that they had uh, and are like, oh, that must have been AFib. So it can be subtle, and it can and it can be something dramatic, like presenting with a stroke uh, or presenting with uh, heart failure. Is there any? Are there any gender differences uh, or racial differences in who is likely to experience AFib? The most common thing we can put our finger on, uh, as far as like a genetic component, is or a inherited thing is really your your age. Um, so AFib definitely increases in frequency as patients age. Okay. If we look at comorbid stuff like other medical conditions, um, definitely the big three are high blood pressure, sleep apnea, and obesity. Um, there's been some really nice studies of intervening on those um, factors and, you know, if you can get your blood pressure consistently below 130 on the top number, uh, if you I didn't know, but you get tested and treated for sleep apnea, uh, or, you you know, working on diet and exercise are able to get your body mass index or BMI below 30, uh, those targets seem to make a big impact on reducing someone's AFib. So there's those those conditions. Now, other diet factors, definitely um, alcohol consumption is unfortunately uh, quite well linked to AFib and pretty much every increasing number of sort of drink a drink a day, two drinks a day, three drinks a day, you see a rise in the frequency of AFib. So those are kind of, those are the big things like we can definitely put our finger on. Now, there there are genes that give you a family tendency for AFib, and they probably double the chances of you getting it. Uh, so some of that can be inherited. Women live longer than men, so they, they will get AFib. Uh, there is definitely, though, a lot of bias when we get to the treatment for AFib uh, that women are are underrepresented in clinical trials on new therapies for AFib, uh, and both racial and, and gender bias uh, exists in you know proper treatment. Just getting people on a blood thinner or trying to address the rhythm. Uh, so, so it sounds those are factors like that we certainly see. Mm-hmm. It, it it kind of sounds like as you age it would be unusual if you didn't have AFib. Am I understanding you correctly? Particularly if you're well, a woman? Well, maybe. It depends. Sure, it depends how hard you look. Um, we certainly look at a 10% or higher rate of AFib at age 80. Okay. Uh, 
but picking up AFib, like if you don't know you have AFib and we don't have some kind of heart monitor that is tracking all your heartbeats, you know, we probably miss a lot of AFib. So as we've started looking closer, uh, certainly patients are getting involved with this with, uh, you know, your own cardiac monitor watches and detection um, products. Patients come in a lot of times like following their blood pressure and they see irregularity on the heart rate monitor or something is, uh, you know, more high-tech is like an Apple Watch or the Cardia um, mobile device. Um, People can certainly pick up that they have AFib and we start seeing more of that. When we put a continuous heart monitor in people, like we call it a loop recorder, actually it's a tiny little thing that goes under the skin and it can monitor the heart rhythm um, 24 hours a day for three or four years. Um, It's quite remarkable how often we pick up AFib and uh, patients had no, um, no idea. The incidence is at least 10% of the prevalence after age 80. So I wouldn't say everybody's going to get AFib, but certainly all of the extra factors that I discussed previously are, are becoming more prevalent. So we, the, the, the frequency of atrial fib across the population is definitely increasing. Dr. Ellis, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like to focus on the emotional responses people have when they are aware that they have AFib. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Ellis, I would imagine that you have seen a range of emotional responses when people receive the diagnosis um, of AFib. What are some of the more common ones, if there are more common ones, that you've experienced? Sure. Well, I think most uh, patients, the first thing that they're concerned about and that um, definitely has an impact on their uh, emotional well-being would be the fear of having a stroke. I think, uh, again, because we're dealing with a, with a arrhythmia that is common, many people I see that uh, we start talking about AFib and what it means to them, um, a lot of times they'll relay even a personal story of someone they know that's had a stroke, uh, you know, mom, dad, a friend, so it's an immediate concern, and um, preventing stroke becomes, you know, the primary thing that we talk about uh, usually on a first consult with a patient um, because it's going to be a lifelong thing. Like, unfortunately, we don't have a great way to cure AFib. Uh, so if we know you have it, um, we have to address over your lifetime, how do we reduce the chances of you having a stroke? Um, so that's one thing that I think people certainly note. And then a lot of patients I see, especially um, around our area that like to, you know, 
get out in the community and see their friends and, and go shopping and do whatever feel like uh, they're always a little bit concerned that they're about to have another AFib attack, especially if they have a lot of symptoms from it and really feel miserable when it happens. Because there are some triggers we talked about that you know you're going to put yourself in AFib, but for the most part, the rhythm just pops up out of nowhere, uh, you know, right at the worst time. <laughs> uh, at holiday party, at, you know, an interview, or you're out on a date, or what have you. Um, it's restricting and limiting to the patient to think about, um, you know, Am I going to go into AFib? And so constantly a little bit of a, of a feeling there. And then um, I also think just in terms of seeing patients like really enjoying what they um, want to be doing, you know, playing golf, uh, what have you, certainly a lot of patients I see are still very active and have uh, a lot of times very impressive hobbies, uh, even in retirement, and they just feel like they can't, do that um, to its fullest when they're stuck in AFib. So it impacts multiple um, multiple parts of a, of, a, of of the patient emotionally. So anytime um, someone is experiencing a chronic, almost anything, but certainly a chronic illness, there is a certainly a contri- uh, increased potential for depressions. It sounds like what you're saying with AFib is that depression and anxiety is almost a very normal, almost expected potential response upon receiving that diagnosis. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, first of all, no, I mean, the two big things that I think most patients worry about getting is like heart disease and cancer, because those are the things that you know, really have a huge impact um, on both your quality of life and uh, your length of life. So, you know, in that way, I think patients are very, um, are going to be very concerned about a diagnosis of AFib. Uh, and it's, again, like I said, if, if it was something where uh, we could easily cure it, you know, maybe that would uh, put a lot of people's minds at ease, but when we start talking about treatment options, anywhere from medical therapy to heart rhythm drugs to ablations and pacemakers and other options to try to control the AFib, I think, um, you know, that becomes quickly a realization for someone that it's really a chronic disease, Um, and so it's something that they're going to have to continue to deal with. What about the emotional impact on people around, the family or friends or or even colleagues if they choose to share it with a, with a uh, employer? Do you notice any particular trend in terms of those responses? Well, we'll see some, you know, if, if, a, if patients are in a real physically demanding um, job, let's say, and they're still, they get AFib at a young age, it certainly can impact their, their quality of being able to perform their work. So uh, in that way, um, you know, it's not, it, it, I don't know that I want to say that it can be disabling, but it's, it can certainly impact um, 
you know what you're what you're um, going to try to do in your profession, both mentally and physically. So it can be physically exhausting and mentally mentally exhausting. Um, you just said, um, particularly if you have someone uh, who's young and has been diagnosed with AFib, mm-hmm. what is considered young for a diagnosis of AFib? Probably less than 50. Okay. I mean, most of the time, so we, you know, we deal with uh, mostly patients between probably 55 and 85 in terms of uh, symptomatic AFib that's affecting their lifestyle affecting their quality of life and they are looking for treatments to try to uh to do to do better um so it's a little bit unusual to see people in their 40s and 30s but but i would say i'm seeing more of that than i used to Uh, i can't put my finger on why (laughs) but it certainly um it certainly is something we're seeing more young patients getting afib do you suggest that someone with a diagnosis of AFib get some sort of support, whether it's a support group or working with a psychotherapist or whatever feels supportive to them to help ward off or manage ensuing depression or anxiety or, or no? Well, there's actually a couple really interesting uh, studies in in some of our impact uh, cardiology journals. One of them actually shows that if you regularly participate in yoga, the symptoms and the the burden of your arrhythmia is significantly reduced. So stress reduction is a definite help in terms of limiting the progression of the AFib. So exercise, definitely good. Exercise is also the only real proven strategy to help reduce dementia. So as you can imagine, if uh, you have AFib and and are prone to strokes or mini strokes um, and dementia, perhaps, you know, regular daily exercise is going to certainly help neurologically keep you from uh, getting in bad shape and so those are definitely components I mean the stress and anxiety component to it it's not that I would say you know we would think about treating AFib with Zoloft but I think getting support so that you feel like you can accept the diagnosis and deal with the symptoms and still enjoy your life that's definitely an important um, aspect what kinds of exercises would you say um, are useful for someone with a diagnosis of AFib? You've mentioned yoga. Is that... That is... Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's a good option. I think it's going to depend a bit on your, uh, you know, your personal capacity for that, depending on... I mean, we see a big overlap, as I talked about, with the increasing obesity and increasing AFib that... A lot of patients have significant arthritis trouble and, you know, telling them to get out and jog is not going to happen. Certainly, the goal would be to try to get your your heart rate up to about 60 or 70 percent of your maximum heart rate. So you can calculate that as uh, 220 and then minus your age. 
to say for a 70 year old person, 150 would be your peak heart rate. And so your exercise heart rate you'd like to get to would be maybe 110. And if you can do that for 20 or 30 minutes, that's going to get you the aerobic benefit. But there's still just getting out and walking 20, 30 minutes a day uh, is a great benefit. And for many patients that I see, because we're trying to work on their uh, on their weight in addition, you know, I really counsel folks, like, after you eat dinner, I don't know if you have a dog or not, but get out and walk the dog for half an hour. You know, get up and move. Um, get your blood flowing after a meal. Uh, it will help you digest. It will help you get some of the weight off. Uh, you'll metabolize it instead of just flopping on the couch and then going to bed. Uh, and you know, so daily, regular walking, um, whatever, whatever you're doing, the goal is to try to at least get your heart rate up, uh, for about 20 or 30 minutes a day, if you can. One of the things that I noticed, um, as I was doing some research into your background is the, uh, the way that your patients appreciate the time and the attention that you take with them. I'm, I'm wondering what it's like for you to work with uh, folks who, just by virtue of your practice, you kind of know that they're going to be a little bit troubled, they're going to be a little worried. It's not a diagnosis that they necessarily want to hear or think about. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like to really hear more about the impact of all of this on you, just as a human being, in addition to being a doctor. Dr. Ellis, tell us a little bit about how all of this impacts Dr. Ellis. Well, that's an interesting uh, question. So I'm in my mid-40s. My my parents are both in their uh, mid-70s. And uh, mom and dad both have AFib. And so as, and, and really they got it while I was in my practice. So as I've been managing a lot of patients and creating some wonderful uh, bonds with many of the folks that we've been able to take care of. Um, I've seen what happens to certain patients over time in certain situations, and it always, you know, makes me a little concerned. But I get to use that back um, with my with my patients. A lot of times I'll tell patients, you know, we're going to, um, first we're going to help protect you from stroke because I would be really worried about my parents having a stroke and and, and I laugh because I put my mom is on Eliquis and, and my dad is on Zarelto <laughs> I tell people tell people that you know I'm going to put you on Eliquis and, and I put my mom on it and I love my mother and most patients you know they get a kick out of that um, on the flip side seeing some of the things that um, when I'm really trying it's a really disturbing thing uh, to me when, you know, one of my patients does have a stroke and it does happen. I mean, it, 
a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes it's something simple, like they had to get a tooth pulled and came off blood thinners for a few days and, and, and then had a stroke. Um, but um, it's been uh, a little more difficult just watching as my parents age. Like my my dad took a, took a spill at his uh, house on his steps and, and being on the blood thinner um, just, I mean, he was bruised up from head to toe. Um, and you see that and don't think um, that's like a really dangerous thing, but you know, now he's like afraid to walk around his house. Um, he just kind of hasn't been the same. And I think a lot of patients, I see the same kind of emotional response to being on blood thinners where they, it's like restricting their ability to just live their life and get out and do things. And so having seen that from a patient side and then also, um, you know, with my parents as they've aged and had difficulties with, with the blood thinners too, it's been, something I'm not looking forward to, uh, but I can kind of see that there's a good chance I'm going to have AFib too. Um, so. so that's a challenge in and of itself. You talked about blood thinners, and, and just the minute or two we have left, are there other options that are generally available uh, that someone can use in terms of a treatment method? Sure. Yeah, mostly we we look at a series of risk factors to predict if you have a high enough risk for stroke and AFib, we're likely to prescribe a blood thinner. It's guideline directed, and it, it, and we know it saves lives and and it prevents strokes. But all blood thinners can cause significant bleeding problems, and uh, and you know there's the issue of you have to take the medicine. You got to be able to afford the medicine. And you can't interrupt the medicine. So uh, increasingly in the last four or five years, a huge part of my practice has been uh, working with um, a stroke protection devices, which are um, really starting to become more commonly used as an alternative to blood thinners. And for some of my patients, it's one of the biggest uh, success stories and, and really a great um patient satisfaction story when we're able to stop blood thinners for that patient safely. Uh, you know, they really appreciate that. Um, and, and many folks that I'm encountering are in a real difficult situation and don't have a lot of options. Uh, but there's, uh, there are several different, um, ways, but the, the concept is to seal off this little, um, part of the heart muscle called the left atrial appendage. And for most patients, probably nine out of 10, that, that would be the source of where a stroke would come from. So if we can deal with it by sealing it off, then you don't really need to be on the blood thinner any longer for AFib. Um, so that, that is, that's something that really only in the last four or five years has become, uh, more widely available. And, um, definitely an option and I think a lot of patients and a lot of doctors still don't really understand that 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 there are good safe options uh, to replace blood thinners. Dr. Ellis, I want to thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your expertise with us today. If someone listening wants to know more about, for example, the stroke 
protection devices you just mentioned, or learn more about AFib in general, mm -hmm. do you have a recommendation for where they can go? Yeah, one definitely uh, patient-friendly option is the uh, Watch Us Now uh, website. So it's www.watchusnow.com. Um, and that has some interesting um, sort of patient survey type uh, guided education on, on use of blood thinners in AFib. Um, there's also the Heart Rhythm Society uh, has several patient-centered um, website links, and uh, also the uh, stopafib.org is another good um, a good place for patients to go. They actually have a really nice conference as well uh, once a year where a lot of experts come in to talk about AFib, and you can you know, sign up and go and, and get a lot of uh, education, and also you can ask uh, ask questions in an open forum. Wonderful. Again, Dr. Christopher R. Ellis of Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Pam. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is always available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org. And remember, too, that we have weekly free giveaways, so make sure you sign up for the giveaway at mindtalk.org. MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care.